Welcome to the podcast. Welcome to the resistance. I'm Brian Lilly. This is the Brian Lilly podcast. Sun news may have set last week, but today we have, well, more, more indications that sun news and what we brought to the airwaves is needed more than ever. The media establishment may be gloating. They may feel that they can continue to spew their trash, their garbage, but the fact is we're not going away. You've got Ezra Levant with Rebel.media. Look for more on that soon. You've got Faith Goldie and True North Report, and you've got the Brian Lilly podcast. And today I'm going to break down for you exactly why Sun News was needed by using the Globe and Mail's editorial today as a prime example. Canada's national newspaper of record went on the offensive a couple of weeks ago, saying that they were really concerned about the Conservatives' new anti-terror bill, Bill C-51. Now, I have some concerns about that, but they said it needed to be rejected outright, and they were concerned about rights and freedoms. They were concerned that Canadians were going to see their charter rights just trampled all over the place. Valid concern. Something to worry about. Something to examine in committee in a bill that calls for, well, warrants to be obtained in order for ceases to do things they're currently not allowed to do. That's called judicial oversight. Fast forward to today when the Globe's lead editorial is all about applauding the RCMP not for possibly violating charter rights, but for trampling all over them and being chastised for it. You'll remember that the last byline that we broadcast last Thursday was all about the report from the Civilian Review and Complaints Commission and Chair Ian McPhail, who found that there were significant, significant, his word, significant problems with how the RCMP conducted themselves during the High River floods when it came to warrantless searches and seizures. He said that they went beyond their lawful authority. That means they broke the law. What's the Globe and Mail's reaction to his report? Well, they want Stephen Harper to apologize to the Mounties, and they say the horsemen didn't do anything wrong. The editorial is titled, Did the RCMP Confiscate Guns in High River? Hardly. It opens as follows. It's not often that one feels sorry for the RCMP. The federal police force has embarrassed itself more than a few times lately and come in for some rough criticism. But a new rebuke of the Mounties' actions during the catastrophic flooding in High River, Alberta in 2013 is unfair, given what the Mounties, given what the RCMP officers were faced with. Not only that, Prime Minister Stephen Harper owes the Mounties an apology for unfairly criticizing them during the height of the crisis. Really? That's the Mounties' takeaway from the report issued last week by Ian McPhail. I don't know how they arrive at that, and I was asking last night, did anyone at the RCMP actually, re- or did anyone at the Globe and Mail actually read the report? I asked David Wamsley, the editor-in-chief over at the Globe, I asked him that specifically. This is the guy that runs the newspaper, this is the head of the editorial board. Did anyone on the editorial board actually read the report? Because while the report does show that the RCMP did some great work, it also shows that they had significant failings, that they had problems in leadership, that they went beyond their lawful authority. 
Maybe those are words that Mr. Walmsley doesn't understand. Maybe those are words that the globe doesn't understand. Or maybe because we're talking about the rights and freedoms of law-abiding gun owners rather than suspected terrorists, maybe that's why the Globe and Mail doesn't care. But they, they finish off their, I want to read the last couple of paragraphs of their, uh, of their editorial today on this, and, and it's just head-scratching. Then I will read you the findings. I will quote from the report. So the report does spend a lot of time lauding the Mounties for doing good work. Fair enough. I get it. I know that uh, I know that the Mounties did some good work, but that doesn't mean everything they did was good. Okay. What about the parts where they violated rights? That is detailed extensively. And at times it's called unreasonable, but that's not how the Globe sees it. They finish off their editorial with this. What was unreasonable was that on day eight of the catastrophe, when stressed-out residents began to complain about what they incorrectly assumed were unwarranted seizures of legal firearms, the Prime Minister's office suddenly weighed in. Quote, we expect that any firearms taken will be returned to their owners as soon as possible, the PMO said. Quote, we believe the RCMP should focus on more important tasks such as protecting lives and private property. This opportunistic armchair sniping was an insult to the RCMP officers working in High River. The Complaints Commission report makes it clear that the Mounties acted courageously. They made mistakes and overstepped, but not in ways that harmed anyone's rights. And there is zero evidence that the officers acted in bad faith. The Mounties don't deserve rebuke. They deserve gratitude and an apology from Ottawa. That's the end of the Globe and Mail's editorial today. And now we know... Now we know how you can violate rights and be on side with Canada's media establishment at the Globe and Mail. Just just don't act in bad faith. Unless, you know, you're dealing with Omar Cotter. They're very concerned about his rights. They're not concerned about the rights of law-abiding legal gun owners in this country, but they are concerned about Omar Cotter's rights, a self-confessed convicted terrorist from Canada's first family of terror. They are worried about the rights being violated of potential terror suspects. Look, we should all be concerned about rights being violated, but when faced with an actual case of rights being violated on a grand scale, the Globe and Mail simply says, well, the officers didn't act in bad faith. They say that residents incorrectly assumed that they're they were unwarranted seizures of legal firearms. But that is exactly what the Civilian Review and Complaints Commission found. They found in several cases that there were unwarranted searches and seizures. Let me read off some of the findings. Finding number 24. The secondary entries for the specific purpose of seizing unsecured firearms were not authorized by the Emergency Management Act. Let me read that again, slowly, for the Globe and Mail. The secondary entries for the specific purpose of seizing unsecured firearms were not authorized by the Emergency Management Act. That means the police had no business being in those homes. See, what happened was they went in looking for survivors. If they found guns but didn't seize them then, they would go back. Well, that is actually a violation of the law. You can quibble about whether it should be, but it is a violation of the law, and it is an unwarranted search, and it is an unwarranted seizure. That is not allowed. 
Finding number 29, in a number of cases, the RCMP seized firearms which were lawfully secured. See, they always said that they were just seizing unsecured firearms in plain sight. We know that's not the case. They seized firearms that were properly stored, properly secured. And as far as plain sight goes, they seized, and it's in the report, they seized firearms that were in, under sleeping bags, hidden under linens. And when you start rifling through someone's linen closet, when you start flipping over mattresses, all things written up in the report, then, then you're not just taking things in plain view. Finding number 30. RCMP members were not authorized by the criminal code to seize secured firearms. Not authorized by the criminal code. Again, that's another way of saying they broke the law. Finding number 32, RCMP supervisors failed to provide sufficient guidance to members involved in the seizure of firearms. That would be the failure of leadership. Finding number 34, where a secondary entry into a building was not authorized under the Emergency Management Act or common law, the seizure of unsecured firearms was also unauthorized. Finding number 37, in several cases, the searches exceeded their authorized scope by expanding from a search for people or pets to a search for firearms or contraband. Finding number 40, the RCMP failed to provide adequate supervision with respect to duties of members pursuant to paragraph 489.11a of the criminal code. What's that? Well, that's the part that follows section 489. Section 489 says that they can seize goods that are in plain sight if they're not allowed to be there, such as unsecured firearms, contraband, and the like. But the section that immediately follows tells them what they have to do. And here's a direct quote from the report. Absent a warrant, RCMP members were obligated to report the seizure, their seizures to a justice pursuant to Section 489.1 of the Criminal Code. The judicial oversight component of seizures cannot be overstated in the context of police officers taking personal property from a home. Parliament has indicated its desire to regulate the warrantless seizure of personal property in a manner that ensures police accountability, transparency, and judicial oversight. Had the RCMP reported their seizures to the court, it may have addressed many of the concerns and criticisms from residents, the media, and politicians. End quote. They didn't go before a judge even when they were taking things under the law. Even when they were following the law, they didn't follow up. So every single seizure of a firearm, in my view, was actually illegal. Because even if they took it in plain sight because someone left it in a front window, in a bay window, as they were fleeing, and they said, let's get this out of the way of the water before the waters come in and then leave, and they left it in the bay window and everyone on the street could see it, and the Mountie said, we can't leave, we can't leave that rifle there. That's not safe. And they went and they took it. Even that seizure would be illegal because they did not follow up and go to a judge. They didn't go to a judge. They didn't seek the judicial oversight required by Parliament. But the Globe and Mail says that that's okay. And Stephen Harper owes the Mounties an apology. No, Stephen Harper owes the Mounties an ass-whooping. That's, that's what he owes them. The Mounties need to be shaken up. 
The Mounties need to be told, and every police force in Canada needs to be told that they cannot just run over people's rights like this. I don't know what the Globe thinks they're getting at, but let me go back to two weeks ago, February 2nd, when they were editorializing against Bill C-51. Again, a bill that I say, let's review, let's put through proper parliamentary committee procedures and make sure that it doesn't do things it's not intended to do. Let's make sure it doesn't trample rights. But what are one of the things that the Globe is really concerned about? Their editorial that day, February 2nd, was titled, Parliament Must Reject Harper's Secret Policeman Bill. They wrote, Among the things CSIS agents will be legally allowed to do is to seek a warrant to break into someone's home, seize and copy documents, install, maintain, or remove anything, presumably a monitoring device, or do anything else a judge agrees is reasonable in these heightened times. That's the end of the quote from the Globe editorial. So they're worried that CSIS will act like a spy service with judicial oversight of going to get a warrant. That's one of the main reasons they say this bill has to be thrown out completely, not considered, not debated at Parliament, not amended, not even looked at, just reject it outright, send it packing. Because CSIS could go to a judge and get permission to do things. And yet we've got the RCMP going into people's homes time and again. Some homes were searched two and three times. Some homes in areas with no flooding were entered. Firearms were seized illegally. Secured firearms were seized illegally. None of that matters to the Globe and Mail. Doesn't matter what you do to a law-abiding firearms owner, not in this country, not to the Globe and Mail, what matters are potential terrorists because they're more concerned about that. This gives you the mindset of Canada's media establishment. This shows you why Sun News Network is so needed. Maybe they didn't take the time to talk to Ian McPhail. I know we did. We played the interview with Lauren, uh, Lauren Gunter and Ian McPhail on last Thursday night's broadcast. Here's a snippet of what McPhail was telling Lauren Gunter about the work the Mounties did. Unfortunately, uh, so much of the good work was uh, obscured by significant communication and uh, leadership failures. Now I want to play you one more clip from Lauren's interview, and we'll get the whole thing posted on YouTube shortly. And if you aren't already, make sure that if you, if you want to stay up to date on these things, that you're following me on YouTube, on Facebook, that's facebook.com slash Brian Lilly, or brianlilly.com, and the name is B-R-I-A-N-L-I-L-L-E-Y. But I want to play another clip of Ian McPhail talking with Lauren Gunter from the last episode of Byline. And he specifically says that the Mounties were going in and doing things they're not authorized to do. Uh, we were concerned, uh, absolutely, that on these secondary seizures, uh, there was no authority under the Alberta Management Act. And uh, in cases, and it wasn't possible for us to determine the precise number, but where entries uh, weren't allowed by law, and I should also say that this is a complex area of law, uh, but where, see, uh, where entries weren't uh, permitted by law, then any subsequent uh, seizure would not also not be permitted. 
Now, I understand that Mr. McPhail is a bureaucrat, so let me translate from bureaucraties. When he says that they're doing things outside of their authority, that means they're breaking the law. What the Mounties did in High River, you and I would be charged with. You and I would face criminal charges. If we went into somebody else's home, we didn't have a warrant, we took their stuff, even if we gave it back. So what's going to happen to the Mounties? According to the Globe and Mail, nothing. Do we really believe that they are concerned about rights and freedoms? When they tell us that they're worried about Bill C-51, the anti-terror bill, but they give the Mounties a pass. I admit that Bill C-51 is going to expand the powers of our spy service. I'm just saying, let's examine that. But what happens if it passes? The Globe and Mail is saying that they're opposed to it now, but when it passes, if the Mount, if CSIS just says they acted in good faith, is that going to be okay? Well, it will be if it's against law-abiding gun owners. It won't be if it's against terrorists, because that's the Toronto media establishment way. Ladies and gentlemen, if it wasn't for Sun News, if it wasn't for my work, if it wasn't for the work of the National Firearms Association, people like uh, Dennis Young, uh, Sheldon Clare, Lauren Gunter, uh, Sean Bevins, none of this would have come to light. The pressure put on by the people at Sun News to say something bad was happening in High River is the reason that Bob Paulson asked Ian McPhail to investigate. And now we have the report and we know that bad things happen. The question is, what happens next? How do things change? Who gets demoted? Who gets charged? Who gets something, anything? Back in a moment. This is the Brian Lilly Podcast, uh, former Sun News Network host, former Sun Media columnist, now broadcasting from the underground. Welcome to the resistance, people. Uh, if, um, if the production qualities are not there yet, my apologies to you. This is the first edition of the Brian Lilly Podcast at Post Sun News. I think we did, I did one with Mark Dunn and uh, just never... Never got around to uh, to doing the, the byline podcast on a regular basis. Now we're going to try and do this more often. But, hey, it's family day, and uh, I can't even go to the hardware store to get baffling to put up in the room here to, uh, to deaden the sound. So we're doing what we can with equipment that I have lying around the house. But my goal is to continue to bring you stories and reporting that you won't see elsewhere or just let you hear my commentary. Now, a week ago, the big story on Parliament Hill was Eve Adams. She went with Justin Trudeau before the Parliamentary Press Gallery, who, I'll admit, were all snickering when they saw her walk out with them. And she said that she was joining the Liberals because the Conservative Party, the Conservative Party no longer fit her values. 
was very difficult um, to be asked to step aside by a party that I had volunteered for and served for over 25 years. Um, but that is not the main factor. It cannot possibly be that factor. That sparked a very long reflection, and sometimes things happen for a reason. And the more I soul-searched, it was very clear that the values of the Conservative Party are not the values of the original Progressive Conservative Party, and they're not the values that I hold. Here's my question for you. Does anyone actually believe that Eve Adams left the Conservative Party over principle? Does anyone a week later think that this is a good deal for Justin Trudeau? It's funny. I was watching CTV's question period on Sunday. I was torturing myself. It's not a show I regularly watch, but in the absence of Sun News, I figured I'd check it out. And the journalist panel, Tonda McCharles from the, the Toronto Star, uh, John Iveson from National Post, Gloria Galloway from the Globe and Mail, and even uh, Craig Oliver, all of them thought this was just a bad idea. And I have to agree with uh, with Gloria Galloway, who, who said, Justin Trudeau didn't need to ask anyone for advice. All he needed was Google. All he needed was Google to find out that Eve Adams is a woman who had spa treatments and hair care products sent in as election expenses in the last election. Those were disqualified by the uh, by Elections Canada. This is a woman who held up a line at a gas station, uh, cursed out the owner, blocked other people from being able to get in because she didn't like the quality of the car wash that she had paid for and was trying to get her $6 back. This is a woman who had um, bent the rules, you might say, in an attempt to get a nomination for a new riding. She had bullied people, broken enough rules in trying to get the nomination that her own party said she shouldn't be a candidate anymore. The conservatives rejected her. So she went to the liberals. What was Justin Trudeau thinking? I'm not sure he was thinking beyond, hey, I can get one off the conservatives. Look, I get poaching people from other parties, but there comes a time when you just have to say it's not worth it. Now, is it worth it to get Dimitri Soudis? I worked with Dimitri Soudis for a long time. He's been a fixture on Parliament Hill for as long as I've been up here, and that's going on more than a decade now. I would have to say no. No, it wasn't worth it. Anyone that's worked with Dimitri Soudis for a long time would tell you that. But maybe they're hoping they're going to get conservative secrets. I will say that the man is no genius, as Paul Wells said on CBC Radio, living next to Albert Einstein didn't make Albert Einstein's uh, neighbors in Princeton, New Jersey, brilliant physicists, and standing beside Stephen Harper for 10 years did not make Dimitri Soudis an actual strategist. We'll see how this one plays out. Back in a moment to talk about Graham Fraser and the attempt by the Language Commissioner to say he rules Twitter. What would we do without bureaucrats? Welcome back to the podcast. I'm Brian Lilly. This is the Brian Lilly Podcast, the official resistance movement of Canada's media establishment. So, Graham Fraser, speaking of media establishment, Graham Fraser is a former journalist. This is a guy who spent decades covering 
all things from Quebec City to Parliament Hill. Um, when I got to Parliament Hill, he was working as a columnist for the Toronto Star. Nice guy, affable guy, we get along just fine. And yet, every time Graham Fraser seems to open his mouth or write something in his official capacity as Canada's official languages commissioner, I can't help but screaming, he's wrong! He is absolutely wrong, and he's done it again. After previously trying to say that his office would regulate private businesses in a private mall near Parliament Hill in downtown Ottawa, that would be the Rideau Centre, the Centre Rideau, uh, because there weren't enough employees that were bilingual, after trying to regulate menus, his office has decided that they're going to regulate the interwebs. That's right, Twitter. Ministers of the Crown must now tweet in both official languages. This according to a preliminary report from Fraser's office that says former Foreign Affairs Minister John Baird and Public Security Minister Stephen Blaney violated the language laws by putting out unilingual tweets. Now, John Baird is an MP. First and foremost, before he's a cabinet minister, he's an MP. And he's an MP for a mostly English area of Ottawa. A Baird can speak French. It's not great French, but he can speak French. Blaney, Blaney represents an area outside Quebec City uh, called La Vie. It's just on the, the south shore of the St. Lawrence River. That is almost entirely Anglo or Francophone. You'll find some English-speaking people there, but they tend to be bilingual. They tend to be very comfortable in French, just like the Francophones in Baird's writing are very comfortable in English. So when they are communicating with their constituents... The people that actually elect them, guess what? Baird is mainly talking to people who are English. Blaney's mainly talking to people that are French. So is it a shocker that that's what they're going to do? Is it a shocker that they're going to, when they get on a very personal communications system like Twitter, 140 characters, is it a shocker that they're going to tweet in one language or the other? But, Graham Fraser says, they must tweet in both languages. From CBC's article on it, actually, I guess they're just posting the Canadian Press article, Fraser's office says ministers don't have to be bilingual, but when they communicate with the public in their official capacities, they must use both official languages. The commissioner's investigation followed several complaints. While the report names both Baird and Blaney, Baird was by far the worst when it comes to bilingual tweets. The Canadian press has obtained a copy of the document which says that during a two-month span, 181 of Baird's 202 tweets were English only. This is what we spend our money on, people? This is what we're worried about? This is, this is one of those departments that makes me wonder why they exist. Laurie Hahn, I think he did this well, the Edmonton MP, uh, conservative MP caught on Twitter and said, Commissioner of Official Languages says cabinet ministers must tweet bilingual. Quel est stupide. He's calling it a stupid idea. I have to agree. It's ridiculous. These things are not official communications of the government of Canada. They're personal accounts. They, it's not a news release. It's not a, a, a statement by the government. It's someone communicating in a very personal way. I happen to be on a lot of different social media. I follow um, Jason Kenney, who was just made defense minister. He's been posting photos on Instagram showing his trips all over 
He's been visiting uh, CFB Petawawa. He visited CFB Trenton. They did a flight from one to the other, I believe. He went up in a, in a plane with uh, Chief Defense Staff Tom uh, Lawson, uh, piloting the plane. He's getting his hands dirty, meeting the men and women that he is now the minister responsible for. As he posts these photos, it's almost all in English. Guess what? Kenny's an Anglophone. He's perfectly, perfectly comfortable in French and about, I don't know how many other languages. Uh, Chinese, Vietnamese are, are, are a couple of them, I believe. But when he's, what's his language? He's speaking in English. But we have a whole department whose job is to police how much French we use. Don't think for a second that the Office of the Commissioner of Official Languages is out there to protect English in Quebec. That is something that they mostly ignore. They ignore English in Quebec. They ignore English in Eastern Ontario when you start getting uh, overly aggressive Francophone areas trying to suppress English. They don't care about those things. And as Beth Trudeau from Canadians for Language Fairness said to me last week uh, when I was filling in on 580 CFRA, Graham Fraser won't even meet with her group, Canadians for Language Fairness, will not meet with them. He doesn't see them as worthy of meeting. But he will take complaints from all kinds of people, including about what's on Twitter. This is what we spend our tax dollars on. People will tell you there's no room to cut. I say there's plenty. That's one of the areas that I'm going to be looking into as we head towards the federal budget. It, we're just starting this podcast, people, and I hope that you're enjoying it. I hope you can uh, continue to drop by and spread it. We'll bring more structure, more production elements in coming days, and we will continue to cover the stories, shine some sunlight, you might say, on the stories that the others don't want to talk about or that the others think they're just fine with. Because I quoted from CBC and Canadian Press here, uh, they're reporting on this as bad minister. They're not going to tell you that forcing people to tweet bilingually is a dumb idea, but we will. Just like we'll continue to follow the craziness that, that, that is the violation of rights in High River. Continue to follow stories that others won't follow or bring it to you with a different point of view other than the downtown Toronto establishment so beautifully expressed by the Globe and Mail. Thanks for dropping by. As always, remember, I'm on your side.